Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show, and it's an honor to bring back a friend of the program and a guy who is uh, always looking to inspire people through his work and art and uh, inspire others to be themselves. Eric Deutsch, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake. Glad to be back. Good to talk to you, my friend. You know, it's great to hear you, man. I uh, I wanted to read this uh, Salvador Dali quote, and you can riff on it. He said... Um, an artist is not one who is inspired, but one who can inspire others. How do you feel about that in your own life? Uh, an artist? Read it to me one more time. Will Absolutely. You? Yeah, I assume you, you can internalize that. An artist is not one who is inspired, but one who can inspire others. I mean, I think that's that's a that's a, a, a an honorable, you know, it's a, it's an honorable way way to look at it, you know, being an artist, and I think that it's the hope. Um, yeah, I think it's I, I think that's a great quote. I mean, because it just it just makes what you do as an artist, whatever that is, not about you, but about. The, but about the people you share it with in the community and in the world, you know, you're giving it away, you know, you're giving it away. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that, that is what's beautiful about it. Right. It's not like, like I don't really make, I mean, I don't really make music for myself. You know, I make it to share exactly more or less. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Of course you have to believe in it with yourself and sometimes you have to say you know what I'm doing even if people aren't, aren't responding to it in the way I thought or something that it is for myself but in the end we're in this game to share it with the world you know and that's where the real joy and the real payoff is I think so So that's it's an honorable way to look at it it's an evolved way to look at being an artist and I, I love that quote thanks for sharing that I mean do you because like it's you know you're list you will make an album but you're not really listening back to your material you're not perseverating on it you're just moving on with the new melodies that are going on in your in your head and then but do you have you come across cats in your touring days and musicians who um really have a hard time abiding by that because their egos that you know just really caught up in the art itself they could be total geniuses but um they're not giving it away it's all about them yeah i mean i think i have come across people like that but i think it's for different reasons it's not just because of ego in the way i'm sometimes it's cause we're making music or that's so uh, you know, I, I don't know, out there or, or, or you know, avant-garde that maybe it's it doesn't have a large audience. And so you kind of have to focus on yourself a little more than, than you would if you were making more pop art. You know what I mean? Um, and I don't think that's ego as much as just like commitment, commitment to what you what you think you have to make. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but. Sure, I've been, I've been, I've been, across, I've been, you know, across paths with all kinds of different artists, with all kinds of egos, and 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 uh, you know, and all in all kinds of different points in their careers. You know what I mean? And so I think you you could say that almost all artists are going to go through so many different phases of of how their music's received and and how it how it connects with them, and if their ego is away or not, and if. Uh, 
if that's you know a good thing or a bad thing and, and so on. So I, I I'd say yeah, I've come across all kinds of things for sure. A little fat. Um, but when I think about people making art for themselves and not as much for people out there, I do think about more more kind of specialized artists and, and avant-garde artists that really have a such a small audience that they have to focus on themselves and just trust that what they're doing is is uh, is you know meaningful. Right. You know what I mean? No, I I, I dig. I mean, how do you feel? Being that you've been down in Mexico City for a minute now, um, can you talk about the the way the crap the crowds viscerally respond to original Eric Deutsch music? I mean, is it is it palpably different than than in the states, uh, like at a bar like Lunatico? Or I mean, I'm just curious about the the sort of the spirit element of the music. Uh, is 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 vi- I mean, to me, like the live experience, whether it's an acoustic duo gig or some burning sextet, it's like the idea is that it should be out of body visceral, not pacified. And I feel like, and I'm just wondering what, what your experience has been like playing live to the cats down in Mexico city. Well, ever since I first came here in 2007, it was, it was notable as to how energized the audiences were um, and, and how unique they felt. It just felt, it felt like audiences that cared about jazz music and had the, you know, ability to listen closely to instrumental music. However, still also were had the ability to and, and had the spirit to kind of party while they were doing it. Exactly. To have to have fun, you know, to enjoy, to sometimes even sometimes even to chat a little bit, but to not ruin the music. At the same time, I, do, I, I know it was just they, they they got it, you know. They get it. They kind of know how to flow with it. And one thing I always tell folks about the Mexican audiences is that they're not too concerned with the genre. Where I, I they, love it, dude. They're not uptight at all. That's the difference, man. Well, well, they they're not concerned about what it is. They're just concerned about how it makes them feel. Absolutely. And 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 I think there's it's more heart, you know. And this, that's the Mexican culture is a lot of heart. And um. I think that I, I, you know, in New York, it was hard to avoid people being like, well, what kind of band is it? What is it? What kind of club is that? I don't like that, or I'm not interested in that, or that sounds kind of boring, or you know what I mean? Totally. There's like there's yeah. a lot of like opinion, opinions about genre. A lot of a lot of people who don't like a lot of different things in Mexico, they tend to they love live music. They they tend to feel like it's an honor, that, like to be even just invited to a show here. I've always um, appreciated that that when I invite folks, friends, or acquaintances, or people I meet to shows of mine or Victoria's here, they tend to say, "Wow, what an honor! Thanks for inviting me. How do I get tickets?" When <laughs> you know, the states, it's kind of like, "How? Oh, oh, is there a guest list?" <laughs> yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> so, so, so it does. It's always felt pretty like pretty uh, supported here, you know, like, you know, and again, I love playing in the States. I mean, that's, that's a generalization, but like, you know what I mean? For my music, it had a special thing here ever since I first came with Charlie Hunter in 07 and then returned in 09 with my band. And, um, uh, what, what basically the basic vibe is here is that we play, we, the crowds are full, sold out often. Wow. Um, wow. we don't have, I don't have to promote, 
you know, like with, with, till, till I'm, you know, t- uh, nervously trying to get people out. <laughs> I don't have to do too many. I don't have to do nearly as much work as I would on a gig in the States. And, and, uh, it seems to naturally fill up, which is really nice for me, you know, and, and, and for Victoria and for the band and for the music. And with my music, they seem to get it. They, they get the ups and the downs, the, the funkiness and the, and the, and the intellectualness and the, and the ballad. Yeah, it's the, a perfect... The, the, no, I mean, but I, I want you to talk about the first time that your band went there. Like, the, the cathartic experience for Deutsch when you were like, this has to be a destination point. Yeah, I think that it was... So I went in with, with Charlie in 07, and right. I made friends with the made friends with the club, and, and especially the, the, the fellow who was, like, hosting us that weekend that was taking us around and picking us up at the airport and everything like that. And he was a guy my age. We made good friends. And um, so I just stayed in touch. Um, we, Charlie Hunter and Simon Lott and I sent him a gift because he had treated us so well. And, you know, that was a nice way to kind of get in, like, you know, make better friends with sure. him at the time, you know? Yeah. And stayed in touch. And he, a couple of years later, he said, hey, come on back. We the club might close, and this was Zinco Jazz, which is still around. But back then, they thought they might close, and said, "We got to have you before we close." And I brought Tony Mason and uh, Ben Ben Rubin and John Gray back with me, and um, it was like we came back, and the club was sold out, just like it had been with Charlie, and it was sold out for two nights, and they treated us great, and it was easy, and there was like you know we had a hotel, and there was like yeah. the, we went to we went to good restaurants, we went out and hung out with. We had a little community of friends, and I was like, "Man, this is awesome!" You know? like, <laughs> so, I had been looking for that. I was thirty. I was in my early thirties then. I guess I was about thirty-two, thirty-three, and so I, I felt that I had kind of because I just moved to New York in '05. I felt I kind of missed the window on going to Europe with my own band um, and making um, a name there. I, I just, for, without getting too deep into it, I felt like I just kind of missed a window on that for New York musicians. Sure. And it got, it got a little tougher in the late 2000s to kind of get a, a festival to give you an anchor date and bring, you know, for if you weren't super uh, known, you know? And I realized that, hey, man, here's Mexico. Nobody's coming down here. It's really close. It's totally affordable. It's really fun. And I get my music. Like, this is my spot. So Dude, I this is right, I unbelievable. Right I mean, I cannot believe that you you felt that, that pulse. And um, I just wanted to go back. You said they're good at, li- they're, they're better at listening. You, uh, that was an interesting statement. I, I, I guess, well, I, I, you know, I think every American audience <laughs> is different. Let me just put that way. Like a New York no, audience, I, dude, we know you love Tour in the States. Audience. No, we know you love Tour in the States. But I mean, yeah. I, I, I listen, being in Tucson, I see, I know a lot of, of um, you know, cats from Mexico. And I mean, uh-huh. uh, they're like really very... Uh, well, they're not judgmental in the sense of, like you talked about, the, the obsession that we have in the States about, well, what kind of music is it, genre? They don't, you know, to me, they're, they're very open-hearted to a degree and, yeah. um, and much more receptive and much more inclined to be able to feel the music and not be detached from it. And, I, I, you know, I'm just saying there's like that Anglo uh, sort of judgment and... In, and I'm not saying it has, you know, there are plenty of raucous crowds here. I'm just saying that for you to be treated like 
a professional or even a genius in some ways. I mean, that's why, and I just don't, you know, it's always been fascinating to me that a lot of intricate, you know, a lot of head music has always sort of um, gravitated and been popular overseas, consumed overseas, but not here in the, in the States, you know? Totally. And, uh, you know, I guess, let me, let me just elaborate on what I feel. I, I feel that I just, I like the way they listen here. It makes sense to me. Hey, interesting. And, what is that? You got to go deeper on that. You got to go deeper on that. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me go deeper. Yeah. And like, and, and because, you know, like a, a German audience or a San Francisco audience or a New York audience or a Japanese audience, they're all different. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and it also depends on the room. Like in New York, it's like a Vanguard audience versus a Lunatico audience versus a Rockwood audience. You know, these are all different things. And these are all places, you know, that I play or watch music, you know, or jazz is played. But I, I think that in Mexico, they have the ability to listen intently, but also have fun and also party a little bit. And they sometimes they can chat a little bit, but somehow it doesn't it doesn't bum me out here because it seems to be at the right time in the music. <laughs> a lot of times, you know what I mean? And now, of course, that I love it, dude. To, no, it's true. I get. I did. Go ahead. Yeah, and of course, often that does have to do with the room, you know, in the and the vibe that's cultivated in the room. You know, rooms have a lot to do with with audiences. But um, I just across the board, I dig the the listening here, and I dig the um. The energy, which can be party-like, it can be exciting, it can be a little more rock and roll. And I think that it reminds me of, of, of a feeling that I get when I read about jazz clubs in the 40s and 50s, you know, Birdland. even the 60s, maybe. Yeah. I just, I'm just not sure that all jazz music should be uh, uh, in, either in a concert form, or, or sometimes it feels like in New York, if it's either, it's either a concert or people aren't paying attention. Like, there's no in-between. Do you That's know what I mean? That's fascinating. <laughs> That's a beautiful breakdown from somebody who's absolutely played thousands and thousands of gigs. So either it's very formal and it's a complete listening room, or it's just made for background and nobody's tuned yeah, in. Yeah, or, or it's harder to get people to focus. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, and it's either it's either 40 bucks or it's 5 bucks. You know what I mean? And it's like, <laughs> it's kind of, and, and, I, and believe me, I love playing a concert where in a with a silent hall. That's nothing more magical. I mean, that's that's an amazing thing. You know, it's an amazing honor. And I also don't mind playing in a bar where people are just talking and you're just throwing down. I really do like that as well. But here, there's just something that works with my music where it can be in the middle. They can be having fun, and then when when we when we pull it down, when we because I, I like to do a, a dynamically to explore a wide a wide uh, spectrum you know when it comes down sure it's nice when they when they come with you and they and they stick with you you know and, and they don't and, and they and they get it you know what i mean oh i mean uh, well i mean do you feel like are the clubs pretty much situated where you're going to get a you know just music every night is is every club ascribed to the the duke ellington school that it's all music or because I mean, you you play music that borders on all different forms, and like, do you find yourself playing in like amplified rock clubs, or is it more uh, sort of uh, an, out of an acoustic bag, or both? Yeah, it's a mix of both. Um, but there's basically three jazz clubs, and that I've been playing here regularly for, for especially the last few years. Wow! And one is Zinco Jazz, which is in the center of the old part of the city in an old art deco bank vault. And that 
that's the same one I played since I was seven. So this is like kind of the best my 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 club of, of my life. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then there's a couple other ones here in Roma Norte that um, one of them uh, we do a more electric thing. Zinco has a Steinway. This one doesn't have any anything like that. And the other one, Jazz Atlan, we do a little mix. So they, they, they're a little different. Um, and the, the fourth club that I've been playing regularly is called Departamento. That's a, a popular nightclub with great a great sound system and, and DJs um, every night that they're open. So I go on there before the DJs do a 90-minute thing sometimes, and that's almost all electronic and usually improvised. Oh, my so God. Wait, hold on a second. Just you solo? No, no, I, I, I've been doing a, a session called Scorpio Session for a year, once a month, and that's um, a, a group uh, improvised kind of elect, electronic, like harder kind of thing. And uh, oh, so my. I do dude, I, was, I mean, I need to hear elements. some of that. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Well, Jake, you, I've been telling you this for a couple of years. You have to come down. I know. I mean, I, I, I tell you, this is this is a uh, this is the this is the the final thing. I mean, this phone call sealed the deal because. I have to, I mean, to me, uh, to be established like that and to be treated as a professional, do, I just am curious, I'm not, not that you're in the schools a lot, but you were somebody who was playing the, the honky-tonk piano back in Nashville in first grade to put the kids to, to nap time. I'm just curious, <laughs> I'm curious about, uh, have they taken, is music still t- uh, taught in the schools or have they taken it out like they have in a lot of the schools in this country? It's a good question. I don't, I, I know about some music in schools here for sure, but I have a, I have a couple friends that work in an elementary school playing for the kids, like kind of like sing along fun i don't know not not instructional but kind of like absolute folk folk yeah yeah i did yeah yeah so i know about that i don't i I don't have specifics otherwise on what's going on in like public schools here i should ask i've never asked well that's fine i mean it's just it's i'm trying to figure out about the other question i would have that you can answer is like not that you're busking but how much music how much culture is out on the street i know that might sound naive i've never been there but just in general like like, are there spontaneous yeah. drum circles? Are there parks where there drum uh, the the drums specifically? Are there drums out in culture? Yeah, I mean, more more um, uh, you know, uh, mariachi style violins and trumpets, horns and, yeah. and fiddles and um, things like that. But yeah, there's lots of music on the streets here. Um, a lot of times there's like jazz bands. Like I see these bands of like teenagers kind of playing in the park with like electric bass and drum set. Whoa. There's, Whoa, dude. That's I've, pretty hip. There's man. a guy that walks, there's a dude that walks around our neighborhood playing a leaf and he whistles on this leaf. <laughs> oh, it sounds like, a, like, it sounds like a, like a, like a, uh, a, a theremin or something. It's oh my God. Um, that's sick. And, and of course, man, you know, there's Mariachi's just roaming and, there's even up at the famous plaza here, Garibaldi Plaza. Mm-hmm. That plaza, at any time, especially on the weekends and the nights, has about 20 to 30 mariachi bands just hanging around. And they have the two different styles, the um, the Norteñas, which are like quartets with, with accordion and drum and bass and guitar, or the the uh, guys that wear the fancy clothes with the trumpets and the violins. Sure, yeah. <laughs> the bigger bands, the septets, the octets. And you can just... You just go and you, and you give them a uh, uh, hundred pesos and they play your song, or you can bring them back to your house. 
<laughs> what about the like that Fania All Stars or like that Afro? Is there an Afro beat uh, element there, Mar- or is it just a mariachi obsessed obsessed culture? Well, there's it's cumbia. You know, it's not Afro beat. But right? Yeah, I, I, yeah. Excuse me. You're right. Yeah. And, and cumbia is an African derived rhythm I'm pretty sure yes yes I'm not an expert so don't quote me on it or like you can't quote me on it but (laughs) let me just I'm not going to put it in transcript I'm not an expert but (laughs) the cumbia music um, is really cool and it's I think that movement is showing a lot of cool modern modern twists and um, some interesting uh some interesting stuff. So, like, so, but not an Afro beat. Like, yeah, no. I want you going. I want you going to the. Kind of thing, yeah, you know? no. I want you going to the to the park to play with those high school cats, man. They're the they're the playing the stuff. But I, I you know, I want to, I want to read you this quote, uh, and then I'll get get your feedback on it. This is from uh, <clears throat> uh, Don Menza, who is a fantastic saxophone player and flute player, heavy in the studios, but. Came up in Buffalo, played the Black Unions, was very close with Sonny, still is close with Sonny Rollins. He said, uh, I joined Maynard Ferguson's band in 1960. I was subbing for Joe Farrell, who had an appendectomy. I had just had one and was recovering. I joined the band in Buffalo for a long weekend, and then Maynard said, we're going to Newport. Why don't you play Newport? Then we're going to Birdland. We need you for about the next month. I said, okay, great. About a year later, Joe had left the band, and I got a call from Don Ellis. He said, Maynard's having rehearsals at Birdland. Why don't you come down? Wayne Shorter had taken Joe's place, but he didn't like it at all. He left real quick. I went down in the afternoon, and I'm sitting there with my horn ready to play, and this African-American dude comes over to me and says, You mind if I use your tenor? I go to take my mouthpiece out, and he goes, No, leave the mouthpiece on. I don't have a mouthpiece with me. I said, Really? Okay, here, man. He went up and played, and another guy comes over and says, you know who that is? I said, no. He said, that was Hank Mobley. He was in real Uh-oh. bad shape at that time. And, Deutsch, I'm not going to say that uh, you've ever lived that experience, but what's the, the can you, is that blues comparable in music today? Are, are you finding yourself... Maybe not in Mexico, but I'm just saying, like, at large, you find cats playing with rubber bands around their horns, or they can barely, or, I guess all I'm saying, it was all out in the open back then. You know, it was just right there in your face. I mean, you know, yeah. so much, and, and I just wondered today, like, I guess the, the larger question is, that's the blues, man. Like, you can play, that. I mean, that's, and, and you don't have to be, Rich to, to to play the blues, but I just wonder if you could talk about that that sort of if you've been humbled like that before in your career, or if you know if if it's something that that you've seen. Well, uh, you know, I think it was such a different era, you know, and I th- I I I have seen I've heard I've I've seen things when I was younger. Friends in, in my band had to, had to hock their, their drums and their trumpet way back in the day in Fat Mama. Um, and, you know, because they, we didn't have, they didn't have any money, you know, and things like that. Um, so as kids, I saw it. 
You know what I mean? Um, how did that affect you? It, how did that affect you? You did see it as a kid. You you actually did. You yeah, saw people scuffling. You know, as, a, as a college kid, you know. That's yeah, fine. I mean, you, I mean, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we laughed a lot about it back then, but it was real. You know, people were were struggling, and I think it affected our our, our music was, was was had a lot of angst in it. You know, and um, we were living kind of communally off our gigs, but some you know some of us had a little money in the bank or a little, a little credit card from a parent or something like that. And some of us did. So it was, it was, it was a stressful time for, for both sides, I think, you know, um, if they were pawning, if they were pawning their drums, what did they do for drums on the gig? They just had a hope that the club had a set. I think think there was a, maybe there was a couple sets. (laughs) We had a couple different sets and he pawned one, but it was, it was the nice one. (laughs) We said, we said, yeah, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? In fat mama. Absolutely. Um, um, I, I remember something that comes to mind is I remember like Joey Barron giving a clinic at NYU that I went to hear him talk mm. when I was around that age mm-hmm. in the early, in the late nineties. And he was talking about when he was a kid, how he would, he couldn't afford drums. And so he played with pencils on a Kentucky fried chicken bucket. Absolutely. Dude, Jimmy Cobb, now, you know, forks and spoons, man. So, you know, I, 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 I've seen it less than those cats did in that era, but I've, I've heard it. I've heard stories. I've been around guys who were desperate like that. I see it in Mexico a little more, even though there's more poverty here. So you do have musicians that are, that are extremely poor on the street, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, rubber band stuff together. Um, and I think that, you know, like, I guess it's, it's a tough, it's a different business now. You know what I mean? And I hate to say it, but a guy like Hank Mobley in that kind of state, yeah. Um, in this era, probably wouldn't have so much of a place, even with that talent, even with that immense talent. Totally. Oh, people, totally. Totally. I think I think people would be quicker to be like, nah, man, get out of here. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I, I, I just, yeah, I just, exactly. Take a hike, man. You know, like. Yeah, I think so, because I think there's so much talent now out there that it's a little less special to be talented. Wow. And, and as we as we know the music business it's it's not enough to be talented you gotta be good at the at the usually for most people you gotta be good at the business side of it and the social media side of it and, you know and you gotta be you gotta be yeah you gotta be you gotta be on time and you gotta be more or less clean you know and you gotta be a nice guy to live with on a tour bus or whatever you know what i mean like there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of things that go in today because i think there's a lot more competition and um that's just my. That's a my fascinating. Opinion. You, you think that, I mean, we are heavily overpopulated as a civilization, um, but just in general, I think you're right. I mean, there's the, the competition is just so much greater, not just in music, but just across the board in general. Um, I wonder yeah, about exactly. like, like, are you able to have the best of all worlds and focus on? playing the gigs you want to play, playing original music. I mean, some of the stuff, you know, an artist, a musician, one reason the music thrived, even if they were junk, you know, stoned out of their minds, I mean, the artists ultimately uh, were able to focus squarely on their art. I mean, you know, Joe Henderson played in Blood, Sweat, and Tears for a while because there was incredible, that was a great, better dough than he ever had in his life. But, you know... are you fully able to focus on your craft and and your work, or and are you able to to not have to deal with the things 
the hats that you don't necessarily want to wear? Well, no. <laughs> yeah, that's the short answer, dude. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, I mean, I will say this, that uh, as uh, compared to a lot of musicians, I do have a, um, a, a willingness to do lots of different things. And I, I, I legitimately enjoy the variety and the, and the, and the um, challenge, right? Mm. And I do have a, a tolerance. I have a high tolerance for bullshit in general, <laughs> whether, whether it's in my career. That's or a like huge a key, man. That's a very big thing to have in life. Go ahead. I do. I do. Yeah. I just do. It just, I'm just, pretty, I'm just, I can deal. Hey, but, man. Um, it's good. But I, so, but where, where it really gets me is that like, I just sometimes feel like it's just a non-stop email exchange. There's a, I have a never ending list of stuff I have to do. The, the self-promotion with the and and everything with the emails and the, and and the social media is so is so time consuming and even addictive, you know, in a way. Even if absolutely. You don't want to be doing uh, why? It, why? Explain. Addictive. Explain why. Okay, so explain why it's time consuming. I and I and I I'm, I'm just saying from the because uh, you know well, ideally you well and 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 is it time consuming because you're. Being trying to be too perfect. I mean, to me, like artists to be shared, not judged. But you know, look, I'm, I'm just Jake Feinberg, dude. You know. Yeah, I just, I just mean that, like, you know, it's like every day I, I have, I got just a, a, a slew of things that I have to do just to, 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 to get the gigs, to put together the, the set list, to promote the gigs, to coordinate the rehearsals. It's just a lot of stuff, and it's the kind of thing that that if I didn't have to do it, I could be focusing solely on my craft, but it's just a lot, it's a lot of business these days, you know, and if you don't get back to folks promptly in this era, you don't have very much, much leeway. I do. So you're really, yeah, you have to, cause you want to keep, you want to keep playing bingo with the calendar. So you have to communicate. Yeah, so, so it's like either, either you're working, you're working for somebody else and not doing this or you're, you're working for yourself uh, while you work for other people, which is what I've kind of always done. <laughs> and and you're, just try, you're just trying to cook up as much stuff as possible. But oh, I even, love it, dude. I love it. Even lately, because, you know, we're probably going to talk about it, but I've got a new gig that's going to take up almost most of my time. Still, there's still kind of all kinds of, you know, whether it's just, just I still got a list of stuff I got to do just to keep my discography up to date online, just to, just to make sure all my... All my stuff's registered in all the right places so that I can, you know, make all the, make absolutely. All the money. That absolutely. 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 To make. It's just a nonstop. Um, wow. It seems like a nonstop uh, email and, and internet kind of job, you know, and, and it, it's cool. It's nice to have the connection, but it also, it takes a lot of time. And I, I do find that it takes away from my creative, uh, you know, time. That's for sure. Well, or, or, or are you feel in the time that in the space that you do have to create, do you feel less inspired, you know, because of, this is a, this is the burnout part of the, the, of the gig is just the, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about the less inspired. I'm, I'm, up, I'm up and down. I'm inspired for different things. I'm always inspired to play, you know, oh, yeah. to play gigs. Always inspired to play gigs. Never, never been an issue for writing and practicing. Yeah, that, I, I'm up and down, but I've always been up and down. So I kind of don't. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. My I'm, I'm getting 
bird out. I'm just like, I just know that it's, that it just seems like a never ending pile of work. If I didn't have that, what would I be doing? Exactly. No, no, I, 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 uh, I might, I might, I might just be cooking more and going to the beach more, you know, and and watching more basketball. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it wouldn't be any different, but I, I, no, I, in all seriousness, I'd probably be crazy. Do you you feel that like, though, I do feel my greatest, moments of creation just come through me you know from nothing and it's just yeah. like, you know there, i mean and I'm, I'm not trying to make this overly simplistic i'm just saying sometimes it's just a matter of you being in that right frequency where and it doesn't you could have spent eight hours shedding but it just comes it just falls it comes through you and it's just something i'm still learning to to trust in you do have to put the work in um i mean you know, what do you? What is your philosophy as it relates to you have multi? I, I assume you have different bands at all the different venues, or maybe the same working unit. Down here, I'm, I kind of locked into a, one working unit for my music for like my last album for La Nuit Blanche. We we kind of locked in a unit. Um, I'll tell you who it is. It's Victoria is our special guest. Oh, that's and, fantastic. And then on the drums, Hernan Hitch, an Argentine drummer, been living in Mexico almost 30 years. Benjamin Garcia, a, a Mexican bass player. Laddie, Laddie Rubel, a Mexican guitarist. And Sly Fifth Avenue, um, an American saxophonist who ha- was kind of accidentally got stuck here during the pandemic. And he's been great. He, he plays in Ghost Note. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, I know that band. Uh, so he got... He... What's the instrumentation? Uh, it's sax, sax, guitar, bass, drums, and me. That's been the band. Sax, so how do you, I think you made an interesting point about, you know, that sort of large swath of like going from the $5 gig where nobody's listening to an, inter, you know, 40 bucks to sit down and, 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 and watch somebody's facility. Um, like, do you uh, have you tried to change up the formula in the sense of like when you play originals, like you don't have okay, it's going to be you know first you blow, then you blow, then you blow. Maybe on one song, maybe on one song, it's like a miles sort of thing where you know the the, the sax player doesn't take a solo on certain tunes. I mean, is it is it unpredictable? What's the most unpredictable? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've always I've always approached jazz music like that. I've never bought into like you needed to have head solo solo. Can you talk about like the the, the the way you cultivated that? I mean, that didn't start. I mean, maybe that was natural, but to me, like that's a that's exactly the way you need to approach jazz. Well, I think that uh, I think it was natural for me, but it's because of where I came from. I think I I came from rock and roll, right. kind of kind of more bluesy, boogie woogie. Although I was a playing classical from a very young age it just wasn't kind of my inspiration you know but i was real into rock and roll really inspired by rock and roll my dad kind of played honky tonk piano and and then when i got into the jazz in high school when i really got into it it was more i was more into like the the, the personalities the the vibe the lifestyle that i was like obsessed with the music <laughs> so like when this I read the Miles sick. autobiography when I was like sixteen, or ah, I love that's it, dude. really I was like, oh, this is why you know. I've always been into that. Like, I always like a movie better if I know the story about like how like Stanley Kubrick was torturing Warren Beatty behind the scenes of the movie. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. <laughs> so like, or, or like, or, or Altman. You know, I, I did, say. I but, did, um, I did. But um, so when I 
this was kind of the vibe already when I, as I got deep into jazz, like I really got deep at 17, 18 year old. And already I was kind of like, I was also real into the dead then. So I was kind of like doing dead jazz sets at this club in DC with my buddies. And dude, I need to hear, I mean, where are the tapes of this stuff? This is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life, dude. (laughs) (laughs) So when, so when I went to Boulder and we made Fat Mama with like the, the month I got there, yeah. it, everybody was everybody was kind of coming from that. Like we were like we weren't straight ahead guys. We, we although I liked playing straight ahead jazz and I liked listening to it. We were like really inspired by like '70s music, like Vishnu Orchestra and, and Frank Zappa and uh, Herbie Hancock and like all that kind of music didn't subscribe to in miles of course all that stuff didn't subscribe to uh, the, the traditional kind of jazz form you know what i mean uh, well the yeah i mean also like uh you know to me like the that weather report that early music yeah. where it was the electric part of it's also like switching from electronic or acoustic to electronic instrumentation but going back to the to the mexican to the to the mexico city band um like um, do you play, will you just real, real straight up? I mean, what's your philosophy on iPads and music stands? I mean, to me, it's a major issue. I mean, I, I to me, that's a rehearsal. Like when you, you got to get up, you got to know the music, you got to know the language and then you can riff off the cuff. I mean, is it, is, yeah. is that an impossible, well, is that an impossible task in 2022, Eric Deutsch? I mean, I mean, I mean, I think sometimes you get, sometimes you got to read music. Okay. Yeah, I mean, but it depends on the music. No, no, I'm like, saying if you're in the studio, that I mean, if you're cutting an album, but I'm saying like in those live settings, do you? To me, like, I don't know. That language should be embedded in order for the vocabulary to grow. I just wonder if that's yeah, I, sort of. I, the, I, I think it depends on the situation. For a band, yeah, it's important. Right. You know, like for like, but like, there's something magical about in New York going to the Fifty Five Bar, showing up. With Wayne Michael Krantz, Blake, yeah, Michael Blank and, and, and Clark Gayton and Andy Hess and, and uh, oh, Tony Mason geez. and Bernstein, whoever, and you're and they're like, okay, read this shit, and you just throw the paper out and you throw it out and it's awesome, you know, and like without rehearsal, there's something for that. You can't, I mean, you're not gonna, you know, there's something he said for the brilliant classical musician who can sit down and read the, the Mahler Symphony. You can't, you know. You, People are going to memorize that stuff, right? Right, of course. Too often, of course. unless they had the the, the, <laughs> uh, the privilege to play it many, many times. Exactly. Same thing with with a Broadway show. You know what I mean? You need the book. This music's too hard to, to internalize unless you've done it for years. Same thing. You know what I mean? Um, so that's my answer. It's like sometimes you got to read music. I, I'll tell you, my teacher Art Landy reads a lot of music because his music is so difficult, and there's so much of it that. And he and he and he loves to pop out for every gig that he does. A whole he loves to dig out a tune that he wrote in 1982. <laughs> you know, that's four pages long with the craziest yeah, roadmap, love, oh craziest God. roadmap you've ever seen. And that's the kind of thing that's like you don't have time to memorize things that are just for a concert. Now, if you're a band, yeah, bands should memorize music. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean. Uh... You, you alluded to it briefly, but um, I, I'm really fascinated with this. I, people were, I cannot say that I 
uh, got into the Black Crows ever. Um, I was also very late to the game as it relates to music anyway, so that's not saying much. But a lot of my friends who have great musical taste have really been gateways for me on my journey. Love the Black Crows, emblematic band. And I saw that you joined them, and I was hoping yeah. you could take us through the, uh, the how that happened. Well, okay. I mean, well, first of all, as a kid, I loved the Black Crows. Yeah. Shake Your Moneymaker and the Southern Harmony were big albums as a kid. We all loved it, it because I was about in seventh, eighth grade then. And that was, you know, when I was kind of obsessed with classic rock. So the fact that all of a sudden, and I, and I was kind of getting over my Bon Jovi, uh, Skid Row, Motley Crue. <laughs> Absolutely. Po- poison phase, which I liked that phase, but I was kind of moving past it. And... I think that when that band emerged on MTV, which I watched religiously, I was like, oh, what the hell is this? This is like a new band that sounds like a classic rock band, and it's awesome, you know? Um, so that was that was important for me as a kid. Um, I saw them in concert in Boulder in about 1996. I remember it was a very good concert. I'll never forget it. Um, Why, uh, and, let me, I just want to stop you for a second. When you saw them on MTV, yeah. Yeah. just speaking as, as a professional musician, what sonically made them sound like an old school rock and roll band was it chris's vocals or was was it the rhythm or or both i think it was was both and i think it was their look and i think um their look their look i mean i I, because they didn't look like an la hair (laughs) yeah 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 they they look they look different and this was like you know this is before the the almonds made their comeback it was like it was kind of before fish emerged it was 1990, you know? Right, and the was, timing was perfect, really. Yeah, yeah, and, like, I didn't know it at the time. I remember a couple of years or a few years later realizing that they were kind of a weed band and being like, oh, wow. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, they, they didn't advertise that in the first album, but by the time the second album came out, there was, like, joints and stuff, and, like, even on the record he was talking about weed, I think, and before uh, Bad Luck Blue Eyes, that song. And, like, I, I was... So... That kind of surprised me because that was the same time I was getting into smoking weed, you know, and I was like, wow, oh, these are a weed band? Like, because there wasn't really, the Grateful Dead were just their own thing. And I didn't care about them in 1990 as a 7th or 8th grader. And it, it was, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of counterculture in that in, in my life. So that's the East Coast, you know? Totally. And, uh, and um, so they, it just felt like that. And, that. and soon after, the Horde tour came, you know, and that was about 92, I think. And, and that's where, like, the Almonds and the Aquarium Rescue Unit and the Blues Traveler and the Widespread Panic. I, I saw Fish. shows on that tour. The Crows were on that, on the Horde tour? I, I think they might have been on the second one. Okay, or, yeah, I, I saw one in upstate New York. They, they were, I didn't know that. That's crazy. I think they were. And, yeah. if, and there was a Lollapalooza and there was stuff like that. You sort of see, and, like, there was this thing in D.C. called the HF Festival, which was a, a radio station, WHFS, and that that was, like, alternative music, and it was, like, the Beastie Boys and stuff at, at RFK, and things just started to change around then, counterculture-wise. Sure, you know what I mean? sure, sure. In that early 90s. You're absolutely and, right, and then, yeah. And then, of course, by the mid-90s, it was kind of like there was a lot of that, that hippie, jammy thing really starting, you know? But, um, uh, or, or having it... But the cr- let me ask you a question, though. The Crows were the crows were not a jam band. They just were into smoking weed and playing serious rock and roll. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But it was like, they, they were they were hippies for that time, because there wasn't any other hippie bands on MTV. <laughs> hey, wow, that's was, so... F- the Flying Melon was a little bit after that. You know, they were, they were hippies. Um, 
but it wasn't one too many. You know what I mean? Blind Melon. I got to go back and dig that around, man. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right, dude. That so the they were hippies, except they weren't. Uh, there was. So you went to the Boulder show. That was a that was an Earth that was a uh, psychedelicized experience, or I was that oh, a it was, it, yeah, it was it was amazing, oh. and it was it was just they were just a bigger band than right. than they were a big band. They were on a world tour with Stones or ACDC or somebody Aerosmith or somebody huge, and they just had an off night and played the Fox on a Sunday night, and it was I remember it was like thirty bucks, which is a lot of money back then, and like I just remember Rich Robinson having a different guitar in every song it's like that's not something you saw at the Fox Theater <laughs> usually you know yeah, it was right. it was like seeing a stadium band in a little room which I've had the opportunity to see a couple times things like that and that's that's a, always a, 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 an intense experience dude you know? that's the best man that's so freaking great so then I mean how did so the anyway, yeah. anyway I was a fan as a kid um, you know you live in New York and you run in these circles and you, and you start to know about people that are running in that circle and he has uh, Bill Dobrow was involved with them, Adam McDougal. Absolutely. Um, you know, and then the CRB band. and the, So there's all kinds of folks that are kind of around that. I remember uh, recording with Shooter Jennings at the Magic Shop in Soho about um, 2012 and, and Rich Robinson popping in the studio and listening to our to our recording and, and giving us some advice. Wow. And so, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of just a New York thing. You're around these kind of folks and those guys were hanging out in New York a lot. And, at some point, I, with Joe Russo, about five years ago, I was on a gig in Telluride with J-Rad, subbing for Marco Bento, and Chris sat in, and we hung, and... Um, well, this is mind-melting stuff. Wait, hold on. That's the only time that's ever happened? Have you ever ever, ever subbed? Otherwise? Oh, yeah. I've done about seven J-Rad shows, maybe, something like that, six, I don't know, something like that. And and and, and Chris just showed up, he just kind of was like, yo, what's, he showed up at the gig, and... and well, it, it was a Telluride at, at, a, at one of the... Oh, it was a festival, oh, beautiful, beautiful, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was there with CRB, and, you know, I was close friends with with Jeff Hill, Tony Leone. Sure, and, Shooter, uh, that was and, Shooter and, years, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, acquaintances with, with Neil, we weren't as close as, I mean, Jeff and Tony and I were like brothers, but Neil I knew pretty well, too. And, um, so... Chris was there, sat in, and then soon after that, I remember Tony Leone saying, hey, you, would you maybe want to be in CRB? Adam might leave. And then I, I was with Lothar Sam, and I was like, I don't know. I've kind of got a thing going, you know? Yeah. Like, and then um, the CRB broke up pretty soon after that, and then I got a call to audition for the Crows. That was in 2019. And I went and auditioned in Nashville. went real well. But they just said, eh, hey, we're going to go a different direction, but you were great. You know, don't, don't, don't sweat it. But I, I knew I did great, and I was prepared as hell, and I, and I knew it was a good fit. And then here we are, and this past summer, Rich called me and said, hey, you know, that, the guy that we have isn't going to uh, be in the band anymore. It's been a couple of years. And we just thought we always liked you, and would you want to do it? And here we are. Dude, <laughs> and, man, wow. The timing, the timing is amazing. We just did a, a, one of the best tours I've ever done in my life in Europe for a month. I'm going to Japan in four hours. Dude, <laughs> I'm leaving to go to, to, oh. go to Japan, and we're going to Australia from there, and um, and the, and we're making a new record in February, and then we're going to be playing in South America and Mexico for the first time. The Crows have ever played in Mexico. We're going to play in March, so. A lot of uh, exciting stuff. Well, I mean, I'm just going to stop right there. I don't think we need to go any further. I I actually, my hope in 2023 is to get down there and 
and really hang, man. Well, you know, show me around. I've never been to Mexico before. So I think that, uh, man, you know, it's beautiful. I just, my final question for you is how did you handle, because a more, a less secure person, uh, would have kind of been, would have been bummed. I mean, not that you weren't bummed, but how did you handle not getting the gig in 2019, even though you played your ass off? To, to me, yeah, like, and, and I kind of thought I was going to get it. it and I what did, I'm saying I, is, like, it's I, like I, that I adversity it. play in the sporting event when you get a bad ref call, you get the turnover, and you could blow the whole fucking thing, shoot your mouth off, do something stupid, but yet you had the self confidence and the will and the sort of the the willpower to just be like, well, I'm just going to continue on my path, and boom, now you're here. Well. Um, thanks for saying that. I mean, I think it just comes with experience because I've, I've been through enough auditions now in my career to know that like, they often are weird and, and often are disappointing and <laughs> not my favorite thing to do. Sure. You know? um, and it makes me feel so much for actors and actresses that they have to just audition all the time. It's just so, so, so uh, vulnerable and, and, and generally disappointing. But I think that <laughs> I, I think that I just, I always like, I don't, I don't, I don't really in this point of my career feel like anybody owes me anything or feel like I'm, I'm guaranteed anything. Mm. I kind of know how mm. the music business is. Now there are no guarantees and literally are very few contracts, you know, and that, you know, and that as long as you, you do everything you can do, and in that case, it meant showing up on time, being prepared for that audition and being cool, you know, and being a nice guy and talking and just being friendly. And, you know, if you, if you do that, then that's all you can do. And the rest is out of your hands, you know. And, and at that time, I was in Leftover Salmon, which was a very uh, family-like um, environment. And I wasn't... I was sad about the idea of leaving Leftover Salmon, and I wasn't ex- excited about that anyway. So, kind of like gave me. It was like, well, you know, I I, I would have, I probably would have left for the Crows in that moment, but I'm kind of glad I didn't. And then, about four months later, five months later, when the Dixie Chicks called me, um, I felt like that actually was a really good timing. Yes. And I was, and at that time, I was like, you know what? I'm glad I didn't get the Crows. I'm glad I waited till now. And I'm glad I got this gig. And then when the pandemic hit and that uh, crows, uh, that chicks gig was abruptly canceled, more or less. Sure. I I also had the same out, uh, attitude when while everybody else was saying, "Hey, don't worry, you're going to be back," you know. And and I kind of thought, yeah, but you know, there's no guarantees. And and even though I also felt a little, uh, you know, sad that I wasn't in leftover salmon because they were kind of working when I was just sitting around waiting for the chicks to call for them for the next year and a half, more or less, even though that kind of, that kind of made me, uh, you know, like disappointed that I wasn't out there with, with my buddies and left over salmon still, I just kind of took it for what it was and, and took the time to do a lot more of my music, a lot more of Victoria's music and make the most of it. And in, in the end, I, I accomplished you, that. You got it all, man. Yeah. And the chicks thing as, as, as I kind of suspected, didn't ever, didn't ever happen and that was okay because here comes this gig which actually is a wonderful fit musically and personally and um can you just talk about the can you talk about why what was made it such an amazing tour aside from it just being like 
electric and new and, and you're feeling the vibe. Like it feels obviously, but I mean, musically speaking, um, I know it's not, you know, this isn't Art Landy and Gary Peacock at Naropa, but I mean, can you talk about musically what made it so cool? Oh, absolutely. Well, well, first of all, there's a gigantic repertoire of great songs. So sure. you, you got, you got, I, about, I had about 60, 60 or 70 to learn when I, when they called me and, and then you're in a band with a really good band. It's an iconic band that I've been friends with, you know, or fans of, sorry, for a long time. And when you're, whenever you're fronted by an amazing singer, it's, it's a great thing. It's a great feeling. It's like going out there with, you know, with Michael Jordan on your team or something because you, oh, you know, you got a chance to win every night. Even if nobody else there, plays well. Yeah, I dig. I dig. When yeah. you're going out there behind Chris Robinson, yeah. it's like, you know, there's never a question like, oh, is, are the fans going to like us? It's like, shit, they're going to like us. It's Chris Robinson. And, and Rich, you know, and like, so you go out there, we got a great band. We, it, it's the, the rig is great. I got the, I got the Whirly and the, and the B3. Oh, Leslie, that's perfect. The, the Clavinet and, and the Mellotron and then the, uh, and then the nice digital piano, and and so the rig's great, and that's all fun. So musically, but here's the thing, Jake. I am playing in this band, it's about 65% rock and roll piano, about about 30% uh, gospel rock and roll organ, wow. and then about, uh, uh, let's say 60-30, and then about 10% clav and synth and other stuff. Oh, I lo- Dude, I love that breakdown. Go ahead, go ahead. And yeah, but but the thing is, what I'm realizing is like I'm not here like like playing like Chuck Lavelle style piano, right? Chuck right. Lavelle played on the entire first album, and we play that album every night this year because it's the 30th anniversary tour of the Shake Your Moneymaker album. He played. So Lavelle played on that on that album. Yeah, the entire, oh, the entire that album. is so yeah. sick. Rick, Rick Rubin produced it. He brought in. Oh, that is sick. So I'm out there playing rock and roll piano in these songs, and and then and then. Uh, uh, their their uh, their their cat Eddie, the, the longtime pianist Eddie, who was just a fantastic uh, um, pianist as well, followed Chuck. And I, to, to imitate that style, what I've realized is that it, it's it's incredibly fun because you're basically improvising rock and roll melodies. And Chuck Lavelle, very melodic player, you know. Oh, he's a t- it's tremendous. Like, it's like a stream of of, 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 of of melodic chordal rock and roll improvisation, basically. Playing that style, I'm having a blast doing it. I'm getting I'm getting better at it. Um, it's a little different than country piano. It's different than jazz piano. You know, other things that I have experience with, and it's 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 super fun and and, and creative. Wow. And wow. I'm up there thinking like, wait, what other bands can I get to do this in? Like, <laughs> what? No, yeah, no, I mean that's that. I mean, the, yeah. the Rolling Stones. Um, yeah, I'm probably not getting that gig, and like. There's, a, you know, there's, I mean, I, I don't know how many bands are out there that really play kind of this style of rock and roll, but the Rod Stewart, maybe, I mean, the, but you know, these bands are barely playing, there's, it's just a handful, you know what I mean? And here I am, on tour with this band, playing this, this really, really challenging, really good music, and, and not only that, but we're in Europe, playing in front of crowds that haven't seen them in over 12, 15, 20 years, playing in Madrid, you know, where they hadn't been for like 20 years, and playing in front of the uh, 12, 13,000 people on a Tuesday night going crazy. 
And it's just like exhilarating. Dude, and we're in these I mean, beautiful places. And we're in London, we're in Amsterdam, we're in Paris, we're in Berlin, you know, we're in Milan. And it's just fun. And, and Victoria's along and, and our puppy's along for some of it. And we're just having a blast. No, man. I mean, dude. I'm so honored. Water, I, you know? It's such a. I mean, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad you're in that group, man. Uh, you know, hopefully, a little, a little bit of accessibility and love will rub off on everybody. You know, from from Eric Deutsch, man. I mean, you are. Uh, you know, stay humble, man. It's. It, I, I think it's a. Not only is it new kind of style, new playing for you, which is exhilarating, but um, I don't know, man. The fact that you can just escape. Anybody can go on tour, uh, you know, I mean, you know, road dog it in a sprinter van, things like that. Um, but just being in your, in that space, in that universe and away from sort of, uh, the day to day sort of horrors that's that are going down, you know, sociopolitically, uh, I think it's just what, what you're doing is absolutely as important as medical doctors right now, you know? And, and so, uh, you know, be safe, man. And, uh, yeah, we'll 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 be we'll be together again in Mexico, man. I can't wait, man. Well, let, let's stay in touch and, and thanks for another another really uh, inspiring hour. I love talking. To you, Ma- love always, man. Take it easy. All right. All right. Peace, Jake. Later, man. Bye.